electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. with the Monopoly board game is that only one person ends up happy in the last half hour of the game. Everybody else is miserable and wants to kill that person. Now, if you believe tech critics, some of the biggest companies in the industry have figured out a way around this unhappy ending in real life. Each one of these multi-billion dollar juggernauts has its own mini-monopoly. Google gets to rule search engines, Facebook gets social networks, Amazon gets e-commerce, and Apple gets expensive phones made by Apple or something. I, I really don't get any of the arguments that Apple has a monopoly on anything. But why does this matter? Well, one could argue, and I know because I'm about to, one could argue that the tech companies that are in the antitrust crosshairs are more central to our everyday lives than any group of accused monopolists in history. This isn't a bunch of railroads or oil companies. This is the app you use to talk all day to your friends and family, the, the phone you use to fire up that app, the service you use to search for the theme gift for a 10-year wedding anniversary, and the store you use to buy that gift. Now, if these companies are found to be monopolists and they're found to be abusing their monopoly power, they could get broken up or otherwise restricted. So should that happen? We're going to help you decide today. I am John Ford from CNBC. Welcome to Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. I'm at the NASDAQ market site overlooking Times Square. Today we're talking monopoly and the money is real. With me today to figure it out, some legal firepower. Doug Melamed is a professor at Stanford Law School. Before that was general counsel at Intel. A couple decades ago, he served the U.S. Department of Justice as acting assistant attorney general in charge of the antitrust division, and it was a busy division. Dina Srinivasan is an antitrust scholar and the author of the paper, The Antitrust Case Against Facebook. Welcome to both of you guys. So my first question, Doug, is how do you define a market in cases like these? Uh, I mean, one could argue that a big part of this is what you call a market. With, With Apple, for example. People try to say that they're abusing perhaps monopoly power in their own app store, but their smartphone share is pretty small overall. So is there an argument to really make there? Well, there might be. It's, it's, it's a factual question. The, the question that you asked, how do you define a, mono, a market, is, is this. You want to know who are the competitors that can constrain the uh, conduct of one another for the benefit of their consumers. In other words, if I raise my price, who can cause me to have to lower the price by underselling me? Or if I change my terms of my privacy terms or the quality of my product, who can constrain that by offering a better product or better privacy terms to consumers? So it's possible that Apple has market power over uh, a set of uh, consumers who prefer its products to other products Hmm. even though there are other products out there that aren't a very important constraint and I guess that's on part Apple's of, behavior. Yeah, I guess that's part of the question is, if I have to switch platforms from an iPhone to an Android phone in order to express my displeasure with something Apple has done, is that too much of a stretch for me, Doug? Does that mean that Apple has a monopoly over the phone that I prefer just because I don't want to switch to a different type of phone? 
Well, it may be that some of Apple's or many of Apple's uh, users are, in a sense, locked into Apple products because they may have not only a, a liking uh, for the Apple, uh, for the iPhone, but also for the complementary Apple products that are, that are kind of built together in a network, whether it's iTunes, uh, Apple, uh, 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 Apple TV, uh, the, the iPad, and the like. So there may be customers that that could have switched to Samsung or another Android phone before they bought the Apple device, but after having bought the Apple device, are now sort of captive to Apple. And Dina, uh, this is a key question, I guess, that you partly address in your piece on the antitrust case against Facebook, because if the market is social networks, then Facebook's got a ton of power. If you're defining it, though, in terms of digital advertising, well, you've got Google in the mix, and Amazon has actually been growing a lot in digital advertising, right? Absolutely. That's, that's correct. And I think the key question there is what do consumers use these services for? Um, and with Facebook, you know, consumers don't use Facebook to see advertising. They use Facebook to communicate with their friends as a communications tool. And so that is a specific product market that, um, that we would have to look at. And, you know, the digital advertising market is a separate question and a separate market. Well, but I, w I wonder who is the end consumer, Dina, in, in your argument in a case like this? Is it the person who's using the product, even though they're using it for free, if you don't count the price that they're paying and handing over their data? Or is it the group of advertisers, large and small, that are transacting in that marketplace? Because if it's the user, it's defined one way. If it's the payer, it's defined another, right? Exactly. It's the user. So the argument that I make is that it's, it's the user. These are social networks. Consumers use them as communications tools. And I would make two points here. You know, we've had antitrust cases in the, pa in the past that look at newspapers that are free, that are given to consumers, and, and that's how we defined the market then. So it's not like we can't define the market for a free service today in that regard. Um, yeah. So, Doug, th this, this is mind-boggling in a way for me because I haven't taken law classes probably, but, but also because we're talking about a financial issue, right? So if, if we're looking at something like Facebook or Google, which we've been trained to think, hey, these are for everyday people to use, when we're talking about the markets in which they operate, how they make money, it's really about the advertisers. And so should we be defining the users as the advertisers, or should we be defining the users as the end users? Well, I think there are two separate markets. There's certainly a market in which the advertisers are the customers. They're buying advertising opportunities on these networks. But I agree with Dina that there's also a consumer market. The consumers might not be paying cash, but as you said earlier, they are paying, not just with their data, but with their time and attention. They're, in effect, engaging in a barter transaction hmm. where they're paying something other than cash for the services. So I think both can be looked at as markets and can be assessed in antitrust terms. All right, so big question then, Doug. How, how do we talk about consumer harm if we're not necessarily talking about money? I mean, I think we're used to talking about this in terms of, oh, well, people are asked to pay more money and they don't have a choice because it's a monopoly environment. But if you're not talking about consumers actually handing over money, say they're handing over data, they're handing over their privacy, how do you define consumer harm? Well, imagine that a company had a privacy policy that it, it adhered to uh, meticulously and the consumers liked 
And then it changed the policy in ways that consumers didn't like so much. Said, we're going to give the data, disseminate your data more widely than, than maybe was indicated by our earlier policy. Mm -hmm. One could think of that as, in effect, a price increase uh, uh, in the sense that it decreases the quality of the product and therefore makes it um, uh, less attractive uh, to consumers. The fact that they're not paying dollars doesn't conceptually change the matter, although obviously it makes measurement uh, matters uh, somewhat more difficult. Dina, to, to me, that's big because that goes to the core of cases certainly uh, against Facebook, right? I mean, I, I could see the writing on the wall as Doug was talking about it there, but, but even against Google. So to your knowledge, as you were crafting this paper on the antitrust case against Facebook, how much precedent is there for talking about consumer harm in terms of things like data versus in terms of things like money? Well, you, you have to think about it. Um Look, if AT&T, AT&T was a monopoly, right? And we did mm -hmm. something about that decades ago. If we imagine that AT&T, AT&T could have charged consumers um, a, a different type of model. They could have had a different type of model for consumers. Imagine that AT&T intermediated the telemarketing uh, function where people were called and they were intermediating advertising, right? Just because that was their business model, it doesn't preclude the fact that they could be the only player in the space and, you know, they could be a monopoly. Another thing that I would point out is, um, you know, from a merger perspective, when television networks merged, there was always conversation around, well, what would this do to the number of ad minutes per hour, right? This was a crucial quality feature for users that were often watching and accessing television for free, and we wanted to evaluate how consumers would suffer from a number of ad minutes per hour perspective. You know, the third point I would make is that it's impossible to measure price increases without keeping the quality variable in that equation constant. And so at the end of the day, quality is really just the flip side of price. These are situations where consumers have a fixed constant price of zero, but quality is, is sort of changing rapidly after the accumulation of monopoly power. And, huh. And that's where we focus. And then within that category of analysis, that's where data and privacy comes into the conversation. Doug, jump in here, because I think this is big. Because I haven't heard it talked about this way, but if consumers are, in effect, paying with their data, and uh, monopoly power of, say, Facebook or Google could be demonstrated with them, hey, in effect, charging us more in that transaction by not using the data the way they said and us not being able to do anything about it. For me, that, that totally changes the game and, and what I understood the legal arguments to be. So what are the precedents that you see that would apply to that idea of, of a monopoly defined by a data transaction versus just money? Well, I don't know of any specific uh, antitrust cases that have dealt with data. But I agree with Dina that there certainly have been a lot of cases that have dealt with free products where one is worried about the possible implications of a transaction or a course of conduct on the quality of the product because that's, in, in effect, a form of the equivalent of a price increase. But I think there's a really important point to, to, to keep in mind here. We're talking about the question whether some of these networks might have market power or monopoly power, which just means a lot of market power, uh, <laughs> over consumers. Obviously, advertisers raise a different set of factual questions. But even having uh, monopoly power and even exercising it by increasing price or reducing product quality, 
That doesn't violate the antitrust laws. So uh, we're, we're talking really about just the first step in a much more complicated conversation about whether these companies have violated the antitrust laws. And yeah, Dina, that's why it, it bothers me that we tend to talk about, uh, and, and I guess journalists across the board have been guilty about this. We tend to, to talk about this antitrust issue across companies that are so different. If you look at Facebook's issues, Google's issues, Amazon's issues, Apple's issues, they're all so different. Uh, you focused on Facebook. Why Facebook in particular? I thought the case against Facebook was probably the, the easiest to understand. You know, here we have sort of what is the equivalent of of, you know, um, this century's telecommunications tool, and it's based on a practice of surveillance, right? So Facebook literally records what you read, do, the websites that you visit, the things that you buy on over 8 million sites and mobile applications that you access from your phone. And that just seemed like a very peculiar exchange that people in the democracy would be comfortable with. And so I decided to go back and evaluate and ask the question, well, how on earth did the market get here? And, and that story, I think, told a very compelling story of why we see this barter today with Facebook. And um, when we go back into the market, we see that Facebook entered the market in 2004, promising it would not use cookies to conduct surveillance on users. Mm -hmm. It continued perpetuating this promise for many years. It tried to do something similar in 2006 and then um, in 2008 and 10, I believe. And both times consumers pushed back and threw a fit and Facebook retreated in the face of competition and said, we're not going to do that. We don't do that. And, um, you know, this sort of continued for 10 years. In June of 2014, Google pulled their social network out of the market. And the very same month, you know, Facebook um, went back really on its word and changed the barter with consumers. So to Doug's point, the conduct that I saw when it came to Facebook is that it really bided its time over the course of 10 years and acquired monopoly power in the social network market by making several positive promises to, consum to consumers about what the barter with consumers is going to look like, looks like, and will look like in the future. Hmm. And consumers trusted that, chose Facebook over competitive networks, and then when Google pulled out, Facebook you know, flipped the switch but the whole thing, in retrospect, looks quite deceptive. And under the law, you know, you can acquire monopoly power if you're competing on the merits, but you're not supposed to, um, you know, compete um, using sort of deceptive behavior or right. deceptive tactics right, to right. sort of get your monopoly position in the market. So once again, this is Fort Knox, and we are talking monopoly specifically when it comes to tech. Are these companies monopolies? Do they have monopoly power? And even if so, are they abusing that monopoly power? Doug, I want to ask you about, in this context we've been talking about, the U.S. versus European standards. Uh, U.S. standard on abuse of monopoly power has to do with consumer harm. Uh, European standard is just are you harming the competitive environment overall? Uh, does that need to shift, you think, in the U.S. to more of a uh, overall competition standard versus consumer harm standard to address some of these issues or no? Well, I, I have to quarrel with the, with the premise of the question. I, I don't think that 
uh, frankly, accurately states the standard in either the U.S. or the uh, EU. Oh, well, correct uh, me. You would know. Uh, let me focus on the U.S. The question in the U.S. is whether a firm has engaged in competition that is not uh, competition on the merits, not offering a better product or a better service at lower prices or innovating, on the one hand, and whether the effect of that uh, has been to uh, increase that firm's market power. Uh, and it increases the firm's market power only uh, by diminishing the, the effectiveness of, of competition because, as we talked about earlier, market power refers to the ability of rivals to constrain a firm's uh, conduct in the marketplace. And so if a firm gains marketplace, what it has done is it has diminished the effectiveness of its rivals, and that means it's interfered with the competitive process, reduced harm the competitive process. That's what injury to competition means in the United States. That normally implies a harm to consumers in the future, and that harm to consumers may ultimately be the sort of the, uh, the normative reason that antitrust law is concerned with competition, but it is not an element of the antitrust defense. So the question you'd have to ask, to go back to Dina's summary of the facts, uh, is this, assuming, uh, as I do, that Dina's summary is correct. First of all, uh, did uh, Facebook, in a, in a significant way, fail to keep its promises to consumers? Were they really commitments that it made and that it didn't live up to that? And then second, was, uh, was that, were those breaches of its commitments important in uh, accelerating or obtaining Facebook's current position in the market. In other words, was it important to eliminating rivals uh, in the uh, social network space to enable uh, Facebook to have market power? Those would be the two questions you would ask in the United States. But even, even if you're eliminating market power in the United States, educate me here, Doug, it seems like uh, eliminating competition, it seems like if you show consumer benefit, uh, th that's an argument that you didn't do it in a way, uh, at least in terms of recent precedent, that caused a problem. Am I wrong about that? Because we keep talking about U.S. versus European standard being different. Well, if you, if you show consumer benefit, uh, then at least sort of presumptively your conduct is competition on the merits. Where it becomes complicated is in, in two areas. One, you might have a benefit coupled with um, uh, harm. And then you have to decide on balance, uh, was this conduct harmful or beneficial? Was it efficient competition on the merits or building a better mousetrap, as it were? Or were you maybe doing something very harmful and then, and then providing a, a very minor ancillary benefit to consumers in the process? Got it. That's the first concern. The second concern here comes from the fact that, we, as we talked about earlier, that Facebook does business in two basic markets, the consumer market and the advertising market. And its use of data increases the value of its product to advertisers because they use the data to make their advertising more valuable to them. Uh, and so it's a real efficiency, a real benefit on that side of the market. And there's an important question that the antitrust laws really haven't fully resolved of how do you take that benefit into account uh, and weighing it, if at all, against the harm to consumers if there was harm in the way that Dina described. All right. Uh, thanks for giving us some more detail there. Time now to get some digits. A few numbers pertinent to our conversation on tech monopolies. Siri has the first two. 44.8% and 50%. All right. First up, 44.8%. Amazon's e-commerce market share 
here in the United States. Then at the same time, prime growth not slowing down with Amazon hitting the 100 million subscriber mark earlier, expected to be in about half of U.S. households by the end of the year. Dina, I know you chose not to focus on Facebook, I mean on uh, Amazon for your paper, focused on Facebook instead. But in your view, as people are looking at the potential uh, antitrust charges against the likes of an Amazon, does the growth of their prime business kind of help their case? Say, hey, people like us, you know, we give them discounts if they're prime members and look at all the people who keep signing up. Uh, that's definitely an argument that they would make. Do you agree with it? For sure. Does it have any merit? Um, you know, it's, it's not clear to me what the focus would be with an Amazon case. So, um, it's just, yeah, I still haven't wrapped my head around that one. I think, I think the focus is really going to be on Facebook and Google. Google's an extremely complicated monopoly. And I think that once, that, I mean, Google's just fascinating. And I think once the stories start coming out with Google, that's really where a plurality of the focus is going to be because, you know, we think of Google and we think search, mm -hmm. but Google has over 70% market share in, in like half a dozen different markets. Right. And the technology that publishers use to sell digital advertising. Well, um, most digital ads are sold in online auction markets. They control the auction market as well. We are going to talk about... buying digital advertising? We're going to oh, talk okay. about Google Sorry. in just a minute. No, 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 it's good. <laughs> you're you're kind of setting the stage there. I want to get done with Amazon, see if Doug's got any thoughts on just that argument that I would expect to see if Amazon were on trial here. That they would point to the prime numbers and their, and their growth and the discounts and say, how about it? Uh, didn't we build a better mousetrap, Doug? Yeah, well, I think they, they certainly will. I've always been amused by the uh, wondering whether uh, if you asked the, the most uh, outspoken Amazon critics, if they're members of Amazon Prime, I'm, I'm guessing a very high percentage are, because there's no question Amazon offers enormous value to consumers. That doesn't mean, though, that, they're, uh, that, they, might, that they haven't violated the antitrust laws. I don't imagine there's a, a reasonable case to be made that Amazon's basic success is attributable to any kind of antitrust violation. But I can't imagine arguments that in specific areas, uh, when competing with or, or uh, positioning themselves to compete with product vendors that use their e-commerce platform, mm -hmm. that, that Amazon might have engaged in some kind of anti-competitive conduct in the way they used data, in the terms that they insisted upon with those uh, vendors, in the treatment they gave the vendors when you go on their website or whatever. Uh, it's sheer speculation. I have no factual knowledge, but I can right. imagine that there might be some violations. The problem for an antitrust plaintiff is that the remedies then would be fairly narrowly circumscribed to those particular practices or perhaps even those particular product lines, and they wouldn't go to the basic business model of Amazon. And there, there is a, a specific complaint, at least out there, that, that is exactly that. Third-party retailers who use fulfillment by Amazon, you know, the, the idea right. being, hey, Amazon has access to all this data about what the third-party retailers are doing. And in Europe, there's a question of, are they abusing their access to that data so they can just go and compete with those retailers using their platform? Well, let's move on, as promised, and talk about Google. Siri, give us those digits. 92.6% and 45%. All right, on Google, 92.6% 
That is the share they've got of the worldwide search market. What about 45%? Well, that is much higher, how much higher the click rate was on a version of Google that was put out there and tested just to see what would happen if there were a version of Google that didn't have its own services at the top of the search results, if it were, you know, more what competitors would consider fair. Maybe had more Yelp links up there. Of course, Yelp is the one that put that together. Dina, um, <laughs> you were just talking about all the services that Google has, and that's one of the things that Yelp has complained about, saying, hey, you know, we're local search and we're in Google search results, but they're stacking all their own stuff at the top of search and hurting our business. I mean, that, that's a core part of the argument against Google, right? It is a core part of the argument against Google. Um, like I said before, Google is truly um, probably one of the most interesting monopolies I've seen. You know, if I were talking about Google, I would start the conversation around the role that they play with um, in the businesses of publishers across America, right? So as a country, we have this problem where we have journalistic operations shutting down, contracting. Users are, are, are sort of feeling this in the form of less journalism, lower quality journalism. They're also fa facing more paywalls when they're trying to read online content. And the question there is why and how is this connected to Google? Mm. And um, what's really interesting here is that Google controls the piece of software that websites and apps use, and they have like over 90% 90, 90 market share here as well, like search, to sell their digital ads. So you're the New York Times or you're another publisher and you are trying to produce content and make and, and sort of sell advertising against that content. Content. The money that you get back goes through Google. And, and here's the really interesting thing. Google has so much market power that all of the um, online publishers that use Google's bottleneck software to sell online ads don't even know what kind of a cut Google takes. Mm. And I think that truly is a reflection of great monopoly power. Like, when do you make goods or services and you give it to a third party to sell on your behalf and they're like, okay, we'll just, we'll just cut you a check. <laughs> yeah, we'll just cut you a check on the 20th of every month, but we're not going to tell you sort of whether we're taking 50% or... As a longtime employee in the news business, I certainly can relate to the complexity uh, of that. And uh, Doug, I want your thoughts on Google, but let's fold them in to Facebook. Let's get some digits on Facebook. Seventy three point nine one percent and one hundred percent. Seventy three point nine one percent. That is Facebook's worldwide social media market share. It's almost three quarters of the market. Meanwhile, Facebook's user growth not going anywhere. That's the hundred percent. It's monthly average users. MAUs have risen 100 percent of quarters every quarter since its IPO. Of course, they were going up before that, too. Doug, you start us off here. I mean, uh, on the one hand, we're, we're talking about the user market versus the advertiser market before. This is big because on the user market in, in social media, Facebook is it. But then digital advertising, well, you got to throw Google into the mix. We were just talking about their power as well. Is this healthy competition between giants? Is it too monopolists? Is, is it both? 
Well, on the advertising side, there's probably a lot of competition, not only among the giants, but between the, uh, the tech platforms and other advertising media. It's not clear to me that advertising on television, for example, is in a different market uh, from advertising on those tech platforms. It's an empirical question. I don't, I don't know, know the answer to it. Uh, let me go back for a minute to the Google story. I had to mm -hmm. smile a little bit when Dina talked about their uh, sort of uh, black box pricing. There are a lot of law firms that used to price that way. They just send a bill uh, to the client at the, end of the, <laughs> at the end of the matter and say for services rendered, pay me a gazillion dollars. They weren't all monopolists, uh, but they had obviously a certain certain dis discretion over uh, their pricing. But more important, um, so imagine you go to a local store, your local grocery store. You've been doing business there for many years, and, mm -hmm. and you go in there looking for a particular brand of uh, cereal or whatever, your aspirin that you want, and lo and behold, they now sell only a house brand. Uh, I'm not sure that's an antitrust violation. I'm not sure that's harming consumers. Um, uh, overall, because it may well be that they have determined, this company has determined, that that's the most efficient, certainly that it's determined it's the most profitable way to take advantage of the, of the grocery store, right. or in Google's case, of the platform. Uh, after all, the, when I do a Google search, I don't pay them anything except my data, but right. their cash comes from the other side, from either selling products through its, its vertical uh, affiliates or selling advertising. And if they find a way to monetize the services that they're providing to me, not clear to me that that's anti-competitive conduct. Yes, indeed. Um, well, I, I'll tell you what. Okay, go ahead. Doug, uh, you and Dina have both given me and our viewers a ton to think about, especially on this data point, which I really had not seen or heard dug into in quite this way. The, the fact that data, this is a transaction, and perhaps violations involving data could be viewed as the equivalent, I guess, uh, of a price increase, and then the fact that there's two different markets that a lot of these companies are operating in, the consumer market and then the advertising market as well. Thank you both for framing that for us and informing us. That's it for Fort Knox. Dina, Doug, once again, thanks for being with us today. Guys, we'll see you next Thank week. Thank you. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. Subscribe wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Check out the reviews on iTunes, leave me a note, also, subscribe to the Fort Knox series on LinkedIn. That's brand new and a great way to keep up with the trends I'm seeing both on this Fort Knox show and in my other work on CNBC. That's also the absolute best way to be in touch with me. Leave a comment on the series. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox channel on YouTube, F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X.com slash YouTube. Matter of fact, you can go to YouTube now and see video of these conversations. Or you can go to the CNBC apps on Apple TV or Amazon Fire TV and find Fort Knox in the featured area. Meanwhile, share this, tell a friend, drop me a note on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or FortKnox.com. And as always, thank you for lending an ear. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.